mathematician and codebreaker Alan Turing has been described as the father of computer science, but his personal life was fraught with tragedy. On the centenary of Alan Turing's birth, Professor Timothy Chapel from the Open University reflects on Turing's personal life within the context of the society in which he lived. Alan Turing was born in what was then British India on June the 23rd, 1912. He had a fairly ordinary upbringing, first in India and then in Britain at Sherborne School. He was an undergraduate at Cambridge, at King's College. He went to Princeton on a prize fellowship before the war. During the Second World War, he worked as a civil servant. After the war, he was employed by the University of Manchester, and he died in Manchester in 1954. But Alan Turing was not quite your average Englishman or your average public schoolboy, was already evident from an early age. He was the kind of person who was interested by mechanical problems, by logical problems, by mathematical problems. He wasn't at all interested in what was then the dominant part of the public school syllabus, which was about Latin and Greek, and about the appreciation of ancient poetry, and indeed the writing of ancient poetry. He fell in love with another schoolboy called Christopher Morecambe. And this was Turing's first love. Like all his other loves during his life, it was a love for someone of his own sex. And this, of course, was not at all the way that people were supposed to behave at the time. It was something that Turing was secretive about. It was also something that caused him grave emotional distress because Christopher Morecambe died suddenly of an infection contracted from infected milk. And Alan Turing found himself bereft for the first time of somebody that he loved. The episode had an enduring influence on his life. It meant that Turing was no longer able to take seriously the ideas which pervaded the public school environment around him, the ideas of religion and of spirituality and of another life beyond this life, another world beyond this world. Turing went from Sherborne School to King's College, Cambridge, an environment in many ways perfectly designed to receive him. King's College, Cambridge at the time in the late 1930s was the world's centre for a certain kind of outlook, the kind of outlook which is visible in what we now call the Bloomsbury Group, in writers like Virginia Woolf and E.M. Forster, and in thinkers like Bertrand Russell and G.E. Moore. Cutting away from all the frills and the Gothic appurtenances of the Victorian past, the Bloomsbury approach was to go direct to the heart of the problem and to treat it with sincerity and authenticity and without looking backwards. So Turing found himself in an environment where the simple ability to look straight and clearly at a problem, to reduce it to its simplest elements, and to answer it in the simplest possible terms, was a virtue which was prized above all else. And that, undoubtedly, was Turing's greatest gift. He was someone who could cut to the heart of the matter. He was someone who could give an apparently naive answer to a complex question and show how that problem yielded to the simple approach. Turing embraced King's College, and King's College embraced Turing. Turing became engaged during his time at Bletchley Park, engaged to be married, but something made him resist. He was open to his fiancée about his own homosexuality. She was unfazed about this. Turing was not so unfazed that he felt he could go on with it. Turing withdrew from the relationship. In employment after the war in the new computing department at the University of Manchester, Turing sought new ways to deal with the enigmas of his own personality. 
he became someone who was quite prepared to look up and down Oxford Road in Manchester for quick liaisons with members of his own sex. And there was a sense in which Turing, in doing this, was doing no more and no less than many other people have done before or since. There was also a sense in which what he was doing displayed what the government of the time might well have viewed as a dangerous naivety. Wars breed permissiveness in morals, as the writer T.H. White once remarked. This certainly happened during the Second World War in society at large. Perhaps, though it's hard to tell, it happened in Turing's life too. Whatever the truth about that may be, it's equally certain that after the war there was something of a moral backlash. Britain in 1950 was a society in recoil from the permissiveness of the Second World War. It was a society in the grip of the Cold War, the new war against an unknown foe. And it was a society closely associated with what was going on in America at the time, which was, of course, McCarthyism. Senator Joe McCarthy and his followers were keen to stamp out all un-American activities. British intelligence was now closely linked with American intelligence. And it remained the case that Alan Turing had in his head crucial classified information about how Britain had fought and won the Second World War. Information that could hardly fail to be relevant in the new struggle against the new threat from the East, Stalin's Soviet Russia. Churchill's civil service, headed by Sir Stuart Menzies, was keen to ensure not exactly that un-American activities should be stamped out, but at any rate that Britain's security should not be compromised by communists and homosexuals. Homosexual activity was at the time a criminal offence. What Turing was engaging in was a kind of activity which would probably be viewed as a security risk even today. In 1951, Alan Turing was having a fling with a young man, age 19, called Arnold Murray. Arnold Murray had friends who were inclined to a little burglary. It seems that Murray tipped them off that Turing's house in Wilmslow was something of a soft target. Turing found his house burgled, reported the burglary to the police, and told the police about his suspicions about who might have done it, having himself apparently some reason to doubt Arnold Murray. The police inquired further, how did Turing know Arnold Murray? Turing, with a kind of self-destructive naivety, was completely frank about how he knew Arnold Murray and about what the nature of their relationship was. To Turing's astonishment, the police started investigating him. He became the subject of their inquiries, rather than the burglary to his house which had happened. Turing was prosecuted for homosexual offences and found guilty. In letters and conversation, Turing seems to have made light of his conviction and of the rather grim options that he was confronted with by the judge, which were oestrogen treatment, what is sometimes called chemical castration, or else prison. Turing opted for the oestrogen treatment. It's hard not to believe, despite Turing's apparently bland remarks about this rather dreadful prospect that faced him, it's hard not to believe that he wasn't greatly disturbed by all this. For the remainder of his life, he was undergoing the oestrogen treatment, the chemical castration, and the rest of his life was not that long. Turing had lost his security clearance. He was now officially regarded as a security risk by MI5, and this changed the nature of his work. Turing's acquaintance, the famous Cambridge philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein, liked to relax by going to the cinema in Cambridge and watching Western movies. 
Alan Turing himself was rather fond of the movies of Disney. In particular, he was fond of the famous 1930s movie, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. He would recite with glee the famous scene from that film where Snow White's evil enemy, the Wicked Queen, douses the apple in poison, which she intends Snow White to find and to eat from. On the 7th of June, 1954, Alan Turing was found dead in his bed in Manchester, with next to his bed a bite removed from it, an apple which had been doused in cyanide. It's possible that he had been driven to despair by the way that he had been persecuted for his own homosexual lifestyle. It's possible also that the treatment with oestrogen had led him, as oestrogen hormone treatment sometimes does, into violent mood swings, and that in one of these violent mood swings he had gone so far as to take his own life. What is certain is that that's how he died, and that thus the life of one of the most brilliant mathematicians in the world in the 20th century came to an end. The Open University. For more information, go to www.open.edu forward slash iTunes U.